Welcome to the Not Okay With Gray podcast, where our intention is to empower men and women to change their mindsets about aging so they can make the rest of their lives the best of their lives. This podcast is designed to be a dose of high-octane motivation and inspiration that propels you to embrace the idea that you really aren't aging. What you're actually doing is evolving, and through your evolution, the longer you live, the better you become at living. Our goal is to empower you to create the life of your dreams because you're never too old to build a life that you love. We want you to build a life of joy, passion and purpose filled with inner peace, dynamic health, great relationships and financial abundance. This is what it means by saying I'm not okay with gray. So, if you're ready to begin the journey of transformation, which will lead you to authentic happiness, it's time to get started with your host, Coach Michael Taylor, the irrepressible optimist with a passion for the impossible. Hello and welcome to the Not Okay With Great podcast, where the intention is to empower men and women to change their mindsets about aging so they can make the rest of their lives the best of their lives. You see, contrary to mainstream media, it is my belief there's never been a better time to be alive on the planet than right now. And my goal is to provide insights, education, and motivation that challenges and inspires you to embrace this sense of optimism. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about life coaching. And currently, life coaching is a $1.5 billion industry that is expected to grow to $2.5 billion by 2030. Life coaches are witnessing high demand from individuals and corporate employees to improve their interpersonal skills, work-life balance, and wellness. And joining me in this conversation is the author of a new book titled, The Art of Transformational Coaching. His name is Dr. Keith Marin, and he has been facilitating human transformational programs for almost 40 years. Hello, Keith. How are you? And welcome to the podcast. I'm doing great. And it's really a delight to, to see you personally and to, to join you here. All righty. So it's great to have you on the show. But before we dive into your book, I want to start off with a few icebreaker questions. So first of all, let's do a few sentence completions. So complete these sentences. Okay. I really love to. Oh. I really love to write. Mm, Okay. My superpower is? Uh, This one will take me a little more time. My superpower. You you remember how the the movie, The the Sixth Sense, the guy, the young guy said, I see dead people? (laughs) Yeah. I I see systems. Ah. Wherever I go, I see systems. I make connections. And I see patterns, and this is a lot of what my writing is about, is the patterns that I see and the implications, in this case, patterns inside of people. But I I see patterns. I see systems all over. Nice. Now, I am proud of... I, you know me well enough to know what I'm about to say but I seek to live a life of virtue. And I think I do. I think I I make not just the best decisions I know, but the ones that are aligned with good values. And I'm very proud of, I live a life that if anybody saw anything that I did at any moment, I would not feel any shame whatsoever because it feels like I, I make good, healthy decisions. Nice. I can't do short sentence completions, apparently. And that's okay. Life, yeah. it, life is... Oh, it's multifaceted and mixed. Just mixed. I just saw the movie uh, uh, Oppenheimer, and it was so glorious, partly because it, it mi- depicted the multiple uh, countervailing problems that existed at the time for which there's no simple answer. I think life is complex and fascinating because of it. Nice. Now, if you were gonna be trapped on an island for 30 days and you could take only one book with you, what book would you take? Oh my God, (laughs) you're killing me. (laughs) 
I, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> but I'll tell you what popped to mind, which is going to be somewhat strange, is a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Hmm. Okay. And he was a psychoanalyst who wrote about how we in society tend to um, do things to avoid facing our mortality. And he described as a Jungian psychoanalyst the many ways that he that we do. And what's disturbing and fascinating about the book is he wrote it when he knew he was dying of cancer. Mm. It's a very famous Jungian treatise. And I don't know that it would be the one, but it comes to mind because it's so rich and fascinating. All right. Now, name a person that has shaped you into the person that you are today. That one's really hard for me, not because there are so many, but because there's so few. I I had a difficult childhood, um, and a lot of the people that were who would be positive role models role models were negative role models, and um, so I didn't have many positive ones. I I loved one of my teachers, Mr. Hulk. He was a he was my English teacher and he was a great storyteller, and I guess the person most would be my stepfather, who was in my life for a short period of time. But he was a he was a good model, um, but just short. So I, I have few. I've kind of I'm very very self made by design. Okay, now there are some people who are pretty pessimistic about the future in general, while others are pretty optimistic. Where do you fall in that spectrum between optimism and pessimism about the future in general? Both. I can't fall in between. Mm. I, I once um, started to write a book called, um, what, what did I call it? Uh, it was uh, a, 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 a Ray of Hope. And it was about the whole history of humankind. I never published this book, but it was just too big for me to write, but I wrote about 400 pages of it and just wow. felt like, okay, I can't do it. I can't do this. But basically it chronicled the, the history of humankind by looking at it from the point of view of the evolution of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And when looked at it from that realm, I think we're evolving and we're growing at the same time. And so there's a ray of hope that we're growing. At the same time, the forces of destruction feel quite prevalent. And sadly, that movie Oppenheimer, the, the movie that we saw, uh, saw a couple of days ago, we can destroy the planet, you know, in the blink of an eye. And uh, hopefully we won't. But the forces of destruction are many. And I don't mean evil. I don't mean it like that at all. And mm -hmm. the forces of hope are many. I, I just say both and I have no idea. I know where I plant my attention. I plant my attention on hope. I plant my attention on what can I do to move the world forward. If those both of those forces of, of destruction and, and evolution exist, I want to be on the side of evolution and do my best to move it forward. But I, I have no idea. Okay. Now, with that being said, I'd like you to introduce Dr. Keith Marin to the audience. So tell them what you do professionally. I'm an organizational consultant. I basically wrap my arms around whole organizations and look to lift them to higher and higher levels. And, um, you know, I've been working with organizations for 40 years, helping the CEOs of those organizations become better CEOs, help the leaders be better leaders, help create healthy culture. And now, you know, at this, the, the waning stages of my professional career, the organization that I'm most interested in is our planet. And so I start to think about how do I move our planet forward in a, in a healthy way. So that's my client is the planet. The planet's not paying me, but maybe some people will read my books and, but uh, uh, that's what I do. Now, you, you sort of alluded to this just a little bit, but there are some people who believe humanity is actually going through an awakening period. And yeah. there is an evolution of consciousness that is beginning to wake people up. And so I've noticed a lot of media attention on the topic of mental health recently. And mm -hmm. I believe it kind of supports the idea that more people are beginning to deal with their emotional and psychological issues. 
So there appears to be, you know, less stigma, especially for men and going to therapy and unpacking our emotional baggage. And so have you noticed that trend that people, again, it appears to be talking more about doing inner work? Uh, absolutely. I, 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 there's a dual trend, though, and it's it's like a two edged sword. Uh, there is the growing, the lessening of the stigma, which is absolutely true. And our young are showing up, showing the way they, you know, a lot of kids these days wear their mental health on their sleeve. You know, I, I too have this or that, but that means the stigma is being released and, and, and we're facing it more and more. I think that's a very good sign. At the same time, I actually think there are growing mental health problems not because we're admitting it, but because it's actually getting worse. And mm. there's plenty of statistics that show that. So um, that's where we're at, I think. Okay. Now, I want to go back to your days at Harvard. Oh, and, and you were studying human development. And so I'm assuming back then that a person probably had to have some type of formal training in order to support people in their personal growth and transformation. Would that, would that be accurate? I don't know. Certainly, the the psychotherapeutic industry, uh, there there were very clear standards and and controls. You had to get certified, and so those standards and that training was necessary. But now, anybody and their grandmother can hang out their shingle as a as a life coach. Yeah. So and so, you know, it, the standards are very very loose in the coaching industry, whereas they used to be tight in the psychology industry. And so, for those of of the audience who may not know anything about coaching can you make the distinction between coaching and therapy yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a classic question um you know i would say the the goal of uh therapy is healing whereas the goal of coaching is efficacy or or, or agency or effectiveness and with that psychologists or psychotherapists do a lot of excavation of the pain of the past to to uh, uh, to face it and to face its effect on one's current life. And so there's a, a lot more catharsis, a lot more emotional uh, exploration that happens in therapy. Whereas in coaching, uh, the goal is to create a healthy future. Now, in my mind, in order to create a healthy future, you got to do some excavation of the past. And if you don't do that, if you just say, I will will myself to the future, a lot of that baggage that exists in your past sticks and it's there and you're unconscious to it and it affects you. So to me, to be a healthy coach and a good coach, you've got to have some facility in helping people excavate that past. But still the, the emphasis in in coaching is is future effectiveness and so coaches become advisors coaches become guides um whereas therapists become healers mm. presumably the healing is necessary but they don't a lot of therapists aren't necessarily very effective in a lot of ways so uh coaches carry forward into the future it's a gray distinction but it's one that works for me yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense now now that coaching has become mainstream, there are lots of people who are capitalizing on the trend and they're great marketers, but not necessarily great coaches. Not at all. So what should people be looking for if they're thinking about hiring a coach? Where, where would you tell them to start? It depends on what they're wanting in the coaching. So in the book, uh, as you may recall, I make a distinction between different kinds of coaching. There's life coaching and then specific aspects of life that one wants to be coached, eating, exercise, finding a mate, you know, are three that are common ways in which people feel stuck in life and they seek some help. But all of that is life coaching or health coaching. There's also problem solving coaching, which could be related, but where somebody's stuck in a particular pattern and they need to problem solve their way through it. There's also thought partnership. I have lots of people who reach out to me because they want someone to bounce off their thoughts with and help them, you know, be sure that they're thinking well. And then there's transformational coaching, which is what the book is all about. And, and so it depends a lot on what one wants. 
if one wants to, you know, lose weight, let's say, getting somebody who's knowledgeable about healthy eating and healthy orientation to weight would be a good idea. What I would steer clear of is any quick fixes. This is, uh, I feel pretty strongly about anybody that offers, you know, magical solutions and quick fixes to any kind of naughty problem you know i'd run the other direction yeah but that doesn't represent all of coaches it's just a percentage and they're trying to sell their their wares they're trying to show you you know hire me and i'll do better job than they will you'll get it faster cheaper no yeah you'll it won't be as enduring the quicker you try to do it the less enduring it is you can pop a pill and lose some weight but it won't won't last. So I would just steer clear of the quick fix of anything in life and and find somebody who's going to say, no, this will cost you some. And we're going to take our time and we're going to excavate. We're going to go deeper to see if we can understand the patterns that exist that have you be in this situation in the first place. And so if you want to lose weight, you got to understand why what 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 has it be difficult for you. And I'm not going to give you a quick answer. We're going to study it together. I would steer clear as the quick answer, the quick fixes. Yeah. So what do you think is more important when it comes to coaching? Credentials or experience? Uh, well, definitely experience, but it's not the experience of having faced X before. I lost 100 pounds. Therefore, I know what it means to lose weight. Therefore, since I have the experience of losing weight, I, I didn't lose 100 pounds, but you know, if I'm I'm somebody who's a dieter, I have that experience, or or I won, you know, the following prize, and you you too want to win it. So I know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. You know what it was like for you to do it. But people are different. What causes them to be the way they are and their patterns are uniquely theirs. And you've got to be good at understanding each individual that you're working with and not apply your solution blindly to, to people. If you're a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. If you have a pretty big toolkit and you're able to navigate with the uniqueness of the individual, then you're far better. And therefore, you've got to understand human beings and what makes them tick, what makes them unique in their patterns and their dynamics. And then you have to understand the nature of change, the nature of transformation. That's not That doesn't come from experience. That often comes from study. Is it a credential? I don't care, but it is studied. It's something you've got to study to be good at it. I don't think experience will give that to you. I think you've got to study and then practice and then study and practice and study and gain experience in helping people and after you've done it a hundred times, and if your success rate is 70 or 80%, then maybe you've got the, the capability, but it's not born out of direct experience of the subject. And it's not born out of the credential. It's something else. Hmm. And I don't, I, you know, I, I see a lot of people, they love the idea of helping others. They hang out their shingle because, you know, I gained, lost hundred pounds. Therefore I should be able to help people. Now you might actually hurt them because you think that what you did is what they should do. And it may or may not be true. Yeah, wow. Now, we've all heard the adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Now, I personally disagree with that statement. So what are your thoughts about people who may believe that, you know, I'm over 50, I can't change, I, you know, I'm, I'm, that's just the way that I am. Well, that thought in and of itself will block you in a sense right? It, it, that's a, a belief system that if I have that belief that I can't be taught, then all of my inner protectors are showing up to defend against learning. And if I have that belief, one of the natures of belief is I'm going to try to pr prove my belief right. Mm. So I will defend anything that comes out of me that tries to convince, convince me otherwise. And now I've sealed that paradigm in place. And so if somebody over 50 or whatever says that to me, I, I go, hmm, that's an interesting belief. Do you realize that that belief will, will be self-sealing? Self and, and, and so your belief affects your choices, which then affects the outcome. I don't believe it. 
but I believe that if you believe it, you're stuck. Yeah. And, and so part of the first job to me as a coach is to help people see that that very belief could be counterproductive. I just know tons of people that do learn. I'm one of them. You're one of them. I'm very much, even though I'm uh, 67 or 66, about to turn 67, I'm drinking up not just knowledge. I'm drinking up ways of understanding life differently than I have in the past. And I'm fascinated by that. So I don't believe it's true, but if somebody does, then you're welcome to that belief. I, 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 I God yeah. bless you. But I, I think you're going to be stuck. You're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be that belief. Now I've come to believe that there's really only two things that will cause a person to want to change. One is change. One is pain, <laughs> one is pain, <laughs> and the other is what I call divine discontent. Uh -huh. Now, you sort of alluded to there's probably a lot more, but yeah. what do you think are a couple of things that keep people from wanting to change? Well, especially as we get older, you know, th there is some truth to the you can't teach an old drug new tricks. There's something to that. I think it's a very, you know, it's like an extreme expression hyperbolic um in nature someday i want to find out what's the derivation of hyperbolic i use it all the time the word hyperbolic no i'm just kidding so so um you know it's it there is something to that phrase you can't te teach a dog new tricks when i notice when i get older as i've gotten older i have a preference for comfort over excitement I noticed that, you know, gone are the days when I want to ride a roller coaster. I actually like watching old movies and I like dancing slowly with my partner. There's a thrill that existed in my early days that are no longer there and a slower pace. I welcome that. But part of that comfort is the comfort of sameness and of habituation. And so what becomes a desirable comfort also has its downside, which is, you know, simply getting stuck in my ways. And, and so I notice I'm a little stuck in my ways a little bit more than I used to be. I notice that I rail against the young people at times. I notice that I get crotchety and fetchy about some of the new fangled ideas. The very stuff that came out of my grandparents' mouth are coming out of mine, including complaining about my back and my knees and my thises and my thats. And, and so I think that's a real thing. I don't think that's a, a made up thing. It's been going on for as long as people have been people as far as I can tell. So that said, I believe we can learn. We do get stuck to some extent, but we can unstick ourselves if we choose to. And the more comfortable we get, the more deadened we get. Mm. I'd like to be a little comfortable, but I still choose aliveness. And because I choose aliveness, I can't play it safe. You can't be alive and play it safe at the same time. You'll you'll be you'll slowly shrivel, decay, and die in the comfort of sameness. So I hang out with people that think differently. I like being around younger people. I like being curious about how they see the world. I have these great conversations with my nieces and nephews who have a very different view than I have about certain things, and that keeps it keeps me alive. Mm. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, but for me. Yeah. For me, the 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 uh, the habituation of life, rinse and repeat for so long, that deadens us and makes it hard to grow and change. So, how do you find that right balance of comfort without deadening? That's that's the to me the challenge of growing older. Yeah. Now, throughout your book, you refer to the term paradigm. So, how would you define a paradigm? Do you want me to get fancy or simple? Simple. 
<laughs> Dang. <laughs> Paradigma in Greek. Well, the Latin derivation, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it, it's a pattern. Okay. Uh, in in as 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 I know you've seen in the book, uh, uh, it's not just any old pattern. So a paradigm in society culturally, you know, is, is a pattern that exists in our culture, in our politics, in our whatever, that defines and shapes how we understand the world. So. You know, to many people in this culture, looking at the Japanese culture, where it's very hard to be direct, you don't say no to your supervisor, you say, well, you might want to consider that, 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 that. If you say no to your supervisor, the supervisor goes, wait, that's not what we do things around here. So in our view, in our culture, where we tend to be more direct, Japanese culture seems strange. But if you understand that culture holistically, it actually makes sense in terms of the number of people in a short area space, in terms of the strength of their culture. Our culture in the U.S. values freedom much more, although, of course, there are lots of examples when we don't live that freedom, but still compared to many cultures, we tend to value it. So a culture is a, a way of understanding life. And from that life, we look at life and we make choices within that paradigm. I'm talking culturally now. And so the choice called don't confront your boss actually makes sense in their culture and in their paradigm. At a personal level, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, a, a paradigm, a personal paradigm, and we have many of them, is a way of understanding the world, a belief system, a set of attitudes, that shape the strategies that we use, that shape what we believe is okay or not okay to do. We then take actions based on those strategies and those actions have outcomes and the outcomes tend to reinforce our, our beliefs. So for example, I, I've operated for a long time on the belief that if I'm gonna get anything, if I'm gonna get ahead, it's up to me. Now I formed that belief early days, partly rejecting my family and with that belief, I just pulled myself up from my bootstraps. And by dint of determination and drive, I got ahead. Plowed over people along the way. I didn't care. I was going to get mine and get it well. And so I employed strategies of being very controlling and direct. Uh, those strategies worked in many ways. Got a doctorate because I was so determined and driven. But man, it was hard for me to feel love and connect, you know, from my heart. And mm. so I got success on one level, but I lost heart connection. So every strategy, every pattern, every paradigm, it, it it's self-sealing. My results prove that my belief was right. If I control events, I'll get ahead. But then it, you know, inside the paradigm, there's very little love and there's very little ease, there's very little joy, there's very little connection, and there's very little mystery. And so it's not the only paradigm. I'm certainly uh, here to tell you I have other paradigms, thankfully. But that one, it's self-sealing in nature. It, it, and that's why they remain, is they, at some level, they work, and then they don't, or they're limiting. Now, it, it sounds like a paradigm is really just a set of subconscious beliefs. You read the book, so you know that that's not quite how I see it. But I know that's what I want you to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no dummy. I'm on to you. <laughs> um, no, so it's it 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 more fully. I learned this um, when I was getting my doctorate. I'd studied by a guy who, who looked at two fundamental paradigms in life, or in interpersonal paradigms, he called it model one and model two. And he helped me see that there are values embedded in a in a in a um, in a paradigm. There's our beliefs, our assumptions, our values, our needs, and our goals that all shape the strategies that we employ. And this is, I think, part of the value of the book and the perspective that I'm offering. That if you want to change a paradigm, you can't just say, oh, "Let's change your belief," because that belief exists for a reason. 
it didn't just pop in your head out of the blue. It was either conditioned or chosen or unconsciously chosen in order to cope with or deal with life. And, and embedded in it are certain goals that you're trying to achieve. Mine was get ahead. But get ahead is not the only way you can live life. But with that goal and with the value of, of accomplishment and the goal of accomplishment and the belief that the world was a dangerous place and you, 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 you got, it, it's a dog eat dog world, I got to get ahead. You know, those, and, and the need to prove myself, there was a need embedded in there to prove myself to be worthy. So my needs, my goals, my assumptions, my values, my beliefs all came together to shape the strategy of controlling life subtly or not so subtly at each step along the way. Um, this is why I think good coaches, they've got to understand the nature of paradigm formation or pa pattern formation. Our strategies, be they for trying to lose weight or for eating, for uh, uh, exercising, for how we address our careers, how we choose our mates, our strategies are driven by these a set of things, not just beliefs. And if we want to change our strategies or get find better ones, we got to literally shift the ones that we have. And that that's the that's why you can't do it easily and quickly. It, it can't be a quick fix to excavate all of those things. Now, as a life coach, when I use the word paradigm, I actually came up with my definition. I love to get your feedback on this. Uh, yeah. This is Michael Taylor's definition of a paradigm, which is a rigid way of believing, thinking, and behaving. And the story that I like to use to demonstrate the paradigm is the story of David Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. Yeah, yeah. All of the experts said it was physically impossible for a human being to run a mile in less than four minutes. And yeah. David did it. And within a few weeks, several other people had did it. So in essence, David Bannister created a paradigm shift. And what he what shifted was, the rigid way of believing, thinking, and behaving, meaning it can't be done. No one can do it until somebody does it. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's a good idea to, especially when you're talking to a client and saying, look, here's how I understand life. You're not going to give them the full version. You're going to give them a, 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 a as clear version as you can. And that's a good one. Thinking, believing. A, rid a, yeah, a, a rigid way. A rigid way of thinking, seeing, and acting. I would say, go ahead. If it if it's a if it's a ruling paradigm, if it's it's rigid, it, you know, you can it, it may or may not have to be rigid. Sometimes our paradigms are loosely held. Sometimes they're tightly held. When they're tightly held for a long time, they become a ruling paradigm. So I don't know that I would say it's rigid, but it's certainly well typically well formed for it to be a pattern. It's something that gets repeated. So yeah. It may be rigid-ish, so, uh, uh, but it's repeated over and over again, so that's what makes it solid. I would not, I would always include the outcome reinforces the belief, because if you're seeing, believing, seeing, and acting didn't have the outcome you believed was true, you'd go, wait a sec. It's not working and you would find a different paradigm. So I think the outcome or at least the perceived outcome, uh, if you if you believe it's so and then you see evidence for it being so, it's the evidence or the outcome that reinforces the belief. What's interesting about that is that if you believe it to be so, that's what you see. You know, if you believe that I'm Jewish, so I'm going to say this. If you believe that Jew, Jews are money hungry, and and then you'll find evidence for money hungry Jews. You'll you'll see bankers, you'll see people who do that, but you'll miss the ones that are not at all hungry. You'll miss the poor ones that right. are, that that are, are are lots of very poor Jews around and very humble, and not at all. Because you're, you believe that it's so, you'll find evidence to support your belief. And so it's not that the outcome supports it, it's the outcome that you see supports it. And then it kind of seals it into place. So I would, 
encourage you to include the outcomes as part of it, the perceived or believed outcomes. You know, they, it's it's happening all over politics. You know, you you the Democrats find evidence for the, uh, you know, the 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 wicked Republicans that are you can't just trust because they're controlling things behind closed doors, and the Republicans or the conservatives find evidence for the you know, the, the, the weeping liberals and, and, and that the, the liberals are trying to take over. They're both trying to take over. <laughs> They're both <laughs> doing the same kinds of stuff. Right. But if you believe it, it's them and not us, you'll see it in them and not in yourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's not that the outcomes reinforce it. It's what you believe are the outcomes. Yeah. It now, feels, yeah. 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 Now we live in a culture that's, always promoting a quick fix. I've even seen some coaches use the word easy when it comes to personal development. And mm -hmm. I personally don't think personal development is easy. And in your book, you mentioned the word praxis, and I never heard that word. Uh, can you tell us what that word means and why we should embrace it when we are committed to our personal growth? Oh, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> it's putting theory into practice, practices, theory into practice. Into practice. Yeah. And, and what I... I, I learned this long time ago. I love that word. You know, there's always the theoreticians, the researchers and the theoreticians that are are trying to understand certain things, but they're not necessarily practical. And then the engineers or the practitioners who disdain the theory. And, you know, the movie that I saw a couple of nights ago, Oppenheimer, just terrific movie. Um, Oppenheimer was into praxis. He was not just a theoretician, although in his early days he was. He was also somebody who wanted to put into practice those theories and make them of use, whether you agree with what he did or not. That's that's your own value system um, at play. But the point is that he was into praxis. And then I'm, I'm reading another book really interesting called The Codebreaker about this researcher who has developed a CRISPR technology, C-R-I-S-P-R, mm -hmm. which, is, which is revolutionizing genetic uh, yeah. gene, gene therapy and, and already being used to help COVID. And she was at first a theorist and a researcher fascinated by ideas, but not necessarily about putting a practice somewhere something shifted in her. And she got really interested in how do we make this work in practice, in society? So I think until you can put a theory in practice, the theory isn't as useful. Uh, that said, I'm not downplaying theorists like Einstein, who he was brilliant and very useful, but he needed uh, quantum physicists and and engineers to make his theories manifest. And so practice is the, the marriage of the two. Mm. Theory and now, in your book, you talk about transforming. Oh, can, can I say one more thing about this? Sure. I, I wasn't kind of pointing to clients, people that they needed to find practice. I was saying it to coaches. Yeah, okay. If you don't have a good theory that's guiding your work, a theory for transformation or change, that is verifiable and useful and flexible with different people, you're going to be practicing without an intelligent approach. If, on the other hand, you're very theoretical and you can't help people apply your theories well, you're not going to go very far. So practice is something I value for coaches and maybe for all beings. But anyway, there, there's my thought. Carry on. You had a... Got it. So again... You talk about transforming paradigms. So how do we transform a paradigm? Uh, I'm not going to tell you because I, I want everybody to hire me and get my book. So <laughs> give, give, us the, give us the cliff note version <laughs> of, of, of transforming a paradigm. Well, well, so the, the book, uh, I think, establishes the, the, the premise that if you want to understand the nature of transformation, you have to understand paradigms. Paradigms are what is behind all strategies that people want to change. If you want to change your strategy and your actions, you got to change the paradigm. 
And so understanding how paradigms form and how they coalesce and how they lock in place is, is really crucial. And then I offer a seven-step model, but it's predicated on that understanding of paradigms. So the first half of the book is about paradigms and how they form and understand them. And then um, the second half is the seven-step model. And this is my recipe that, you know, I borrowed from other people that I learned from and shaped it in my own particular way and then applied it for 40 years. But the seven steps are name the problem, name it clearly as a problem, name the desire or the transformational goal, study and understand how the paradigm formed that created the problem, um, own the problem, uh, question the pattern. Like you've got you to be willing to say, like you, you were saying earlier, it's either pain or, or, or tragic event or that, that causes people to change. I don't think, I don't agree with you, by the way, but you said it and it's usually a problem that causes people to change. I have one more piece I want to add to it, but but study the problem and then question the paradigm. Like say, I once I own it, then I need to go, okay, this paradigm is limited. I want another way. There is another way. Now I can explore and experiment with other ways and, and use the coach to help me expand my way of understanding. And then the last step is habit. Once you experiment, choose and then habituate the new paradigm if you don't habituate it it won't stick very well and this is why diets don't work it's really hard to keep the keep it going you know deprivation diets you're not going to habituate that you've got to habituate a new lifestyle and it can't be deprivation or it won't won't work or you'll be or maybe you'll lose weight but you'll be a wreck of a human being as you deprive yourself of so much so that those are the seven steps that you know saying it doesn't help you do it but the book explains a lot about it. Now, how important is, and I think you've kind of touched on this, but when we start talking about transformation, and I just I just love that word, transformation. I know. As, as I reflect over my life and the transformation, um, I, def I define transformation as the process through which we transform from who we thought we were to who we were born to be. And that's that's just Michael Taylor's thing. But when it comes to transformation, how important is emotional healing? Oh, well, it depends. It so there there's I'm gonna simplify the world. And you haven't taken the bait when I said I don't agree with you. That was interesting. But <laughs> maybe maybe you'll come back to it. You're a mature guy, you don't you don't take the bait. But you know, I'm gonna oversimplify the world just to, just as you did and say that um usually patterns form through pain um, and suffering. Give me the question again. Do you remember the question? How important is emotional healing? When All it right. So, so usually patterns form through uh, pain and suffering, some kind of traumatic event or series of events or developmental trauma, or from copying what's around us. Now that's an oversimplification of forms by other factors, but if we just take those two as the primary ways, um, then if, if your paradigm is because that's the way all the people that I grew up with, that's the way they, they, they uh, did things, then when I'm exposed to something different, I might initially have a, no, that's not the way the world works. But, you know, we go to college or we go to other cultures or we go to other places and we get exposed to people who think differently. And they we go, oh, hadn't thought of it that way. Never where I grew up. We never talked about it that way. But now that you mention it, I'm now curious. And so curiosity might be enough to carry you out of a paradigm that was created by cultural imprinting. Um, if in your culture of imprinting, they negated everybody that didn't think the way you did then it becomes harder to break through. There's an emotional breaking from the past, but sometimes it's just simple, easy. Oh, didn't see that that was even possible. Now that it's I'm exposed to it, I'm curious. 
the ones that are trauma related, you got to go through, through, you got to do the inner emotional work. And even if you do the inner emotional work, it's sometimes not enough. I know lots of people who have done somatic healing in trauma therapy. They release their patterned um, pain. They, uh, but they don't escape the fear that remains imprinted in them because they haven't worked hard to release the fear that still remains. So it, it's not just emotional healing. Sometimes it's rigorous. I got to take a risk in life. I got to go out. Not all men, I got raped and not all men, or I'm a man and I got raped, but that doesn't, I got raped by a man. That doesn't mean all men are bad. How do I find good men out there? It's scary. Uh, I don't know if women do raping, but I suppose they do emotional raping at times. Yeah. And the same thing, the same trauma could occur. Um, it takes a certain degree of courage to break free of the pattern. And that's not just emotional healing. That's something else. It's really dedication. And uh, I'm using rape as a dramatic example. Not all traumas are like that. Yeah. My, I, I wasn't raped, but I had a tra traumatic life childhood. Yeah, and, and the reason that I bring it up is, again, I'm, I am a certified life coach. That's just a title. But what I know is that for years, when I first began what I'll call my transformational process, I, I, was, I was following Anthony Robbins. And I was yeah. I was studying NLP, neuro linguistic programming, and so I had all this stuff in my head, right? I did the walking on hot coals barefoot, all of that, really yeah. And so I was I was putting my life back together after a bunch of adversities, but I was doing all this stuff, but there was something missing that I couldn't figure out. And it wasn't until I was introduced to a guy named John Bradshaw. And John Bradshaw had a workshop, three-day workshop, Healing Your Inner Child. Yeah, Healing Our Wounds, I think, was one of his early books, too. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, book that, the book that really put me on the path was I read his book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading that, too. Yeah, and that book changed my world because I started to recognize the origins of some of my behavior and that I, I had what he called toxic shame because yeah. of my tra uh, my traumatic childhood. But it wasn't that I did his work that I learned to let go of that shame and let yeah. go of all that negative energy, if you will. And so I, I, I've always been this positive guy and there's such a thing as toxic positivity when you're in denial of how you really feel. And that yeah. was me, yeah. right? I was always hiding behind, everything's great. You know, I even went to the new age side saying, you know, the universe is perfect and everything that happens to me is perfect, you know, and just complete denial. But again, for me, that three-day weekend of dealing with and going back and reliving basically the pain from my childhood and letting that go is what really set me free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really, really set me free. So to me, that's that was my transformational moment where I really yeah. got it about myself yeah yeah you know be careful forming too much of an overall theory that says that's the only way yeah when it comes to trauma that's i i believe most other strategies are bypass strategies and i'd be careful of them yeah and and yeah i have the same thing to the point by the way that shame thing which you're talking about when i work with somebody and i i suspect you might too when you see a highly active inner critic in that person, a raging inner critic, you got to address the inner critic for them to actually have the transformation. It may not be what they came in for. They may have came in for, you know, I want to be a better mother or be a better husband, or I want to heal my relationship with my, my children, or, you know, I want to, I want to uh, lose weight or, 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 or I want to be a better leader. You know, they may come in with that desire, 
But if they have a lot of shame, then it's really hard to do the excavation. It's really hard to look at the patterns that created that pattern, you know, the deeper patterns that created the strategy. And so when I'm dealing with someone with an inner, a raging inner critic who has a lot of shame, that's the thing we got to work on first. Yeah. To where they can go, okay, I'll, I'll look. I'll now look. I don't feel so bad. I'll, I'll be able to own and face some of the things that I do. Um, and then when they can own it and face it, now we have a chance to to transform it. So, yeah, I, I share that view wholeheartedly. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, what role, if any, does spirituality play in transformation? Well, that, that uh, uh, certainly depends on one's belief. You said earlier in our call that, you know, for you, the definition of transformation is from where we are to where we're meant to be. And I believe you were referring to a, a state of grace, a state yes. of wholeness. Uh, I don't know if you, you're familiar in the Bible, they, what the original definition of sin is a, a break from our nature. Mm -hmm. break from wholeness and so when you sin you break from wholeness i'm not religious so i i can't even though i'm referencing the bible um i do believe in wholeness i do believe in in living a healthy life and the more i open up to life the more i drop the pattern conditioning of control and open up to the mystery of life, I see how life is so beautifully connected. And I don't know a better definition of spirituality than we get that we're all connected. Yeah. And when we get that we're all connected, then we do good things for other people. We just naturally serve our fellow human beings. We naturally want to give. Our divinity, our sense of divine place in the universe becomes very naturally one of giving and it and it serves us to give it feels good we're no longer broken inside ourselves and therefore we're not broken from the universe around us and when we heal we we open up and and to me spirituality is simply the remembering that we're connected mm. I mean, most of us felt that when we were very very little some of us never even got that and we don't even know how to remember it but most of us had something, some love and tenderness in our lives early on. And if we did, we, we felt connected. We felt well held by the people around us. And then that somewhere we, we broke from that. Yeah. We can go into another conversation about how and why, but if spirituality is wholeness and connection to all and everything, then I think it's essential. And I think the path of transformation naturally, the more we heal what's broken, the more we see some of the choices we made in order to protect ourselves and the strategies we formed to be successful at some level to cope with life and the more we choose other strategies that are more expansive the more whole we become and so i agree with you that not in a religious sense but in a spiritual whole whole sense yeah all healthy roads lead to to, to a connection to all and everything and so i wholeheartedly believe that but i don't put it on my clients i don't go come here and you'll be saved it's really come here <laughs> right. let's explore what's going on sure and and let's see if we can help you become more whole and more capable and more effective so yeah i, well, I don't well, know if that's what you believe but that's i resonated with your comment earlier uh in, in my way of looking at it yeah and ultimately though isn't that what we want is just connection i mean when we really tear it all down that's what we really long for isn't it just connection i actually want more cars <laughs> and, 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 and a bigger, I, I don't know what the hell you're talking about car than i have but but <laughs> but 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 in in the end what are we going to remember our life by it's not the toys that we had it's not the money that we earned it's that and yeah i that's what i want and my most healthy version of myself, myself understands that. I lost, I was, uh, uh, almost all of my life saving was, was stolen uh, about three years ago. And 
and uh, al almost completely irretrievable. And so I had a big reckoning with life. You know, I, I railed against the universe for about three minutes, not much longer. But the reckoning was, you know, what is my life really about? What makes my life, you know, rich? And it ain't the money. And it's not what I could do with the money. As long as I have a roof over my head and food on my plate and some modicum of health, I only need a little bit of money for that. Now, I admit it's a privileged life that I've led, so it's easy for me to say this. Yeah. But I think it's universally true. That's all I really wanted. And the reckoning was making peace with the loss. It wasn't even a reckoning. It was just making peace with the loss. Thankfully, I've regained some of it. And thankfully, I have resources besides my savings. And so I'm not crying over it in any way, shape, or form. But it was a big um, punch in the gut. Yeah. To have 30 years of savings be stolen. Wow. And, you know, and then ask myself, so what? What am I left with? And I'm left, left with riches galore. I'm left with my buddy, Michael Taylor. <laughs> you know, I'm left, I'm left with love. I'm left with my family. I'm left with good friends. I'm left with the, the richness of the world. And, and so to me, yeah, that's what I want. Yeah. I think I have it and I want more of it. Not money, <laughs> not fame. Uh, it's, it's, it's connection. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's it's interesting because for most of my early life, my early adult life, I chased stuff. Yeah. I yeah. chased stuff. And it wasn't until I went through my divorce, bankruptcy, foreclosure, depression, and being homeless for two years living out of my car yeah, that I really got it yeah. <laughs> about what's really important. And there's a wonderful song by a guy named Darius Rucker. And the song is titled, All Right. And the chorus line says, I got a roof over my head and the woman I love laying in my bed and it's all right. Yeah, yeah. Every morning, I, when I wake up, the first thing I do, I roll over, I look at my wife, I smile and I, I have a prayer of gratitude. Just yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, when I, when I lost the money, uh, three years ago, there was a song that kept coursing in my head, similar to that one. I'll sing it to you. It's called, uh, it's a song, a children's song uh, written by Rafi, a children's singer. Mm -hmm. And it goes like this. All I really need is a song in my heart, food in my belly, and love in my family. All I really need is a song in my heart, food in my belly, and love in my family. It just goes on and on like that. Yeah. And and that song, much like the one you just mentioned, it was with me for months and months. And it wasn't that I was making it up, as I was remembering mm. that song from my children's childhood. And I believe that song. Yeah. It's really that simple. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Keith, now I'd like to give you an opportunity to um, do a shameless plug for your book. <laughs> um, and, and again, for, for those of you who are watching, um, we talked a little bit about coaching. And what this book really does is, as a life coach, I'm learning from this book. Um, and it really helped me sort of reframe how I coach. And I think that's primarily the target, I would think, Keith, that it's really for coaches more so. But there's so much wisdom in the book about coaching in general, which means changing your life. Um, that's that's really what this is about. Transformation is about changing your life. So, Keith, I just want to give you an opportunity for a shameless plug to put out there about your book. And I, I'm enjoying it so far. I'm not complete yet, but I'm really enjoying it. I'll, I'll, I'll test you later to see if you... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not, I appreciate that. I'm not much for plugging anything. You you, you, you know that about me. I, um, I, I feel bold in some ways, but I don't like 
self-promotion. So I appreciate being given the opportunity. You can get it on Amazon. Doesn't cost a whole lot. Uh, if you're a coach, I highly recommend it. If you're a coach and you're listening to this, go to my website, artoftransformationalcoaching.com. If you didn't have time to write that down, just put my name in and put coaching and you'll find it. And there you'll get, you'll see resources about what, what me and the group of people that I'm working with are all about. Um, I think it's a, a meaningful uh, addition, significant addition to coaches who want to be better at what they do. We wrote a companion piece called The Art of Self, I and another guy wrote a companion piece called The Art of Self-Transformation. It's not ready for prime time yet. It's now, it's a workbook. Uh, we're doing a workshop called The Art of Self-Transformation. We did one a year ago and it was wonderful. We're going to do it again in uh, probably early January or February. And for people who are not coaches and want to, you know, learn about how do they how to understand paradigms, that workshop will be invaluable. Keep your eyes open for it. It'll it'll be out eventually. It's, we're not yet ready to set a date. It's mostly for leaders, um, but it it's certainly for people who want to express and influence the world in a healthy way. But the book would be equally useful for anybody. I don't know when it's going to come out. That's about as much as I can say. My, I appreciate the opportunity. And which, which website would you like me to place below this video? I'll have a link. So would you want to go to your, which, which... Art, art of transformational coaching.com. Okay. Let me, let me make a note of that. So I'll put a link. Yeah, that would be the one for coaches. And if this is aimed, you know, for people who are, uh, getting gray but uh uh but but are, are really wanting to rethink their whole approach to life uh in in and after middle age you know that that may require a paradigm shift i'm sure you're working with people in helping them shift their orientation to the 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 last year the last half of their life yeah you know for people like that i don't know if it'll be useful but I'll bet you'll be useful to them and any other coach that is working with people and their paradigms, the, the book will help a lot. And so with that being said, as we wind down, I just want to share this, my experience with Keith. I met Keith, gosh, it's been what, 10, 12 years ago or so at the- It's at least that, yeah. Yeah. And um, I was just beginning this process of transformation and it was a, it was a men's weekend, basically. And I got to tell you, I was, I was so, first of all, I was intimidated as hell when I met Keith because of how he so masterfully facilitated, okay? And during the workshop, I don't know if you remember this, Keith, I was walking back from our lunch break and I was just kind of processing through my head and what I was saying was, I want to be able to coach just like that guy. Yeah. And Keith walks up behind me and we just started talking and I told him how intimidated I was by him, but I wanted to be just like him. And I don't remember your exact words, but basically what you told me was, Michael, be yourself. Yeah. You don't want to be like me, be yourself, be the best coach you can be. But it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't the words as much as just the feeling I got of support. Um, yeah from you as a coach, basically. And it, it, it really just changed my whole weekend because it, it gave me the confidence to just be me in the, in the workshop. And, and I'll, I, never forget, I'll never forget that moment. I remember what I said to you because you stood out for me in many ways. But I remember saying something slightly different but similar. I said, look, if you see that, that you see this in me, that you see what you believe is this goodness that you want to be like, I want you to get you already are that. There you go. But the goodness is in you. Otherwise, you couldn't see it in me. Yeah. And so you can project it out onto me all you like, but I'm not taking it in. I'll appreciate your respect, but it's in you. 
and I mean that. I meant it then, and I mean it now. And I can see it. I can see how you've evolved as a uh, as a as a coach and as a thought leader in in this world. And so, you know, to me, that's what I said. And 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 then I I I'm, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure I probably also said. And whatever version you become of of this thing that you see will be uniquely yours, and 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 that is also true. You say stuff and you do stuff that is just, and your spirituality is is gorgeous. It it is the unique version of you that I've grown to love and appreciate, and it even even did then. So that's what I remember. Yeah, and again, Keith is a mentor and a friend. Um, and I'm blessed to have met him and to be able to call him my friend. Um, and when, so when I say that, I love what he's up to. And again, I'm still learning from him. And again, I do highly recommend, especially if you're a coach, uh, to pick up this book. Because again, I'm a life coach certified, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm committed to growth. I, 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 I believe in constant and never-ending improvement. And I, I try to become the best version of myself all the time. And this book is really helping me become a better coach. Um, so again, if you are a coach, I highly recommend that you add this to your toolkit because it is something that will support and empower you to be the best version of yourself as a coach. And with that being said, Keith, I now want to just give you an opportunity for any closing comments that you have as we wind down. I can't beat that, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Just thank you. It's really... It's been too long since we've connected. I'm really glad that we found each other again in this way. So I'm just left with good good feelings. And thank you for bringing me into the into this exploration for of yours. All right, man. Again, thank you for joining us. So this has been another episode of I'm Not Okay With Great Podcast. And always remember, it's up to you to make the rest of your life the best of your life. So go out there and create the life of your dreams. We'll see you next episode. Take care.